Welcome to Mosaic Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Mosaic Church Leeds, based in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information on Mosaic Church, please visit mosaic-church.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Okay, um, so it's come to that moment. Uh, dear, I have a box of tissues and a baton at the front. The baton is for hitting people. Right. <laughs> So it's come to that moment when I have to give my last sermon as an elder at Mosaic Church. I hope there'll be opportunities in the future uh, to minister among you again, but these are my parting words. As, yeah, Matt's like, you never get an invite back. Great. <laughs> Love you, brother. I'm uh, sure you understand these aren't just my last words. They're words full of emotion. And if the emotions get the better of me, I will read the script. And if you want to take a sweepstake on how long it's going to take, now's your chance. Ever since Leanne and I came to that moment last November where we knew the Holy Spirit was moving us on from Mosaic, I've thought long and hard about what passage uh, to speak from. It's hard to know where to start, where to stop. There's so much you want to say, so much you could say. And I was feeling at a loss of what to do. And then I thought, it occurred to me that there's leaders in the Bible who had to, uh, in in moments of transition, who had to say goodbye to their people, uh, deliver their parting words, and hand on a baton. I thought about speaking from a number of these transition moments. Moses, hands on the baton in the book of Deuteronomy. Joshua, hands on the baton in Joshua chapter 24. I thought of Jesus in John 13 to 17. Before his departure, he comforts his disciples with the promise of the Holy Spirit and reminds them that no servant is greater than their master. And if he was persecuted and suffered, so his disciples will be persecuted and will suffer. I thought about Matthew 28, the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, remembering that Jesus is with us to the very end of the age. Or I thought of Acts chapter 20, where a very emotional scene on the beach in Miletus, Paul gathers the Ephesian elders and says, be faithful to teaching the whole counsel of God and warns them against false teaching. But after considering all these passages and writing many sermons which you don't have to endure, uh, yeah, the passage that stuck in my mind was 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 8. These are actually the last words the Apostle Paul ever gave to the worldwide church, and they're the words I want to leave you with as I depart. As John Stott says, these words are Paul's legacy to the church. If I may add a bit of personal testimony before we move on, the book of 2 Timothy is a book that's very dear to me and has become a kind of friend that I've enjoyed returning to again and again and again. I feel I know 2 Timothy very well, but I feel the book knows me, and the book reads me. Whenever you spend time with good friends, friends you know well and who know you well, you don't have to make a big effort because there's so much shared history. You come away refreshed, encouraged, and challenged. Well, 2 Timothy's a bit like that to me. I hope you'll all end up with books of the Bible that will act as good friends in your lives. It's become my go-to book that I read with young men that I've had the privilege of discipling and mentoring over the years at Mosaic, and it was part of the syllabus for the first 630 leadership course. So why 2 Timothy in particular? Well, it's a moment of transition where Paul hands on the baton. Now, if you're anything like me, you were absolutely captivated by this summer's London 2012 Olympics. Britain had standout performances from Mo Farah, Jessica Ennis, and Andy Murray. However, there was one event that we didn't do very well in. In fact, we underperformed And that was a 4x100 relay. We knew if we performed well, we'd be in for a shout of the medal. But for the fourth time in five Olympics, we haven't been able to get the baton around the track without breaking the rules. 
This time it happened in the final changeover between 21-year-old Dan Talbot and 18-year-old Ankeleg Adam Gamili. Gamili ran out of the allocated box by the time he'd received his baton. In previous Olympics, it had been far worse, with the draft baton being dropped at a changeover. You see, when running a relay race, it's important to hand on the baton correctly and not get disqualified, and above all else, to make sure you don't drop it. Well, 2 Timothy 4 is the moment when Paul hands on the baton. His part of the race is over, and he's handing it on to Timothy, but he's also handing it on to every believer and every church down the centuries. And he's desperate that Timothy and the church will not be disqualified and drop the baton. He wants him to finish well, and he wants him to remember that ultimately in the race of faith that God has called each of us on, it is not being the fastest or the best or the most successful in the world's eyes that means you win. No, in the end, it's faithfulness to Jesus which counts and means you receive the victor's crown. Paul knows what's at stake and how delicate the situation is. The baton could easily be dropped. We don't have time for the detail, but here, here are just some headlines. Timothy himself was young. He was weak and frequently ill. He has a timid temperament and is prone to shrinking back. The church in Ephesus, where Timothy is an elder, where people and leaders are deserting the faith. False teaching is rife, and Christians are undergoing incredible persecution and suffering under the Roman Empire and its tyrannical leader, Nero. And then finally, there's the Apostle Paul, a spiritual father to Timothy, in prison in Rome and about to die, and then he passes on the baton. So as Leanne and myself come to the end of our time here at Mosaic and hand on the baton, I want to leave you with three things. I'm not the Apostle Paul, and I hope I'm not about to die as a martyr under <laughs> Nero, but um, I do think these words are helpful for us all and remind us of what it means as individuals and as churches, that we would finish the race and remain faithful to Jesus to the end. Let me read these brilliant words. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine, Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, Paul says. And the time has come for my departure. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. The three things I want to leave you with, I encourage you to remain faithful as I pass on my orange baton. I want you to remember your audience, our great judge, Jesus. I want you to remember the standards, the word of God. And I want you to remember the prize, the faithfulness to Jesus is what counts. Verse 1. Remember your audience in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who would judge the living and the dead. And if you have his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. You all know that if you run a race, there's lots of people you can run for. You can run for the crowd. Every British athlete at the Olympics said the difference the crowd made to them getting a medal. You want to please the crowd, it's understandable. You can run for your coach, 
Behind every great athlete, there's a great coach. It's not surprising athletes want to run for their coach. You can run for yourself. As you know, many athletes run to boost their own ego, to gain the accolades. They want to please their self-esteem. Who you run for in life reveals your motivation. It reveals your heart. If Timothy is to succeed, he must remember his primary audience. Paul says, don't let it be Nero. He's not the final judge in your life. Don't let it even be yourself. You're not the one that gets the final verdict in your own life. Don't even let your church be your primary audience. The judge of all of us, the one who gets the final verdict in our lives, is Jesus. So Paul starts chapter 4 by giving a magnificent and glorious view of Jesus. And I want to give you that view now. Hannah just read from the passage. You see, one of the greatest problems I've encountered in my own life and here at Mosaic as I've met with people is we have too small a view of God and we have too big a view of ourselves and other people and it cripples us and we become enslaved to people's opinions and personal achievement. We need a big view of the Lord Jesus. In Revelation 4-7, to we get a picture of the present reality of heaven and a day that will come. It's a day when all of creation has been put right by the perfect judge. His kingdom has perfectly come and his glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Christ, the Lamb of God, is seated on the throne. The four living creatures fall down because he's so magnificent. The twelve elders fall down because he's so glorious. The angels fall down because of his power and his majesty. And together with an uncountable multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation, we will all sing, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. But it's not just us who are singing. Romans 8 tells us that creation is groaning, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed in glory. Creation too longs for the appearing of Jesus. Because when he appears, not only will we be perfectly liberated, but creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay. Psalm 96 and 98 put it so beautifully. The Lord reigns. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in truth. Do you see? When Jesus comes back to judge the world in righteousness and truth, when he comes to put the world right, when he comes to wipe every tear from our eyes, when everything sad comes untrue, when all those moments when we were hurt or felt snubbed or felt underappreciated are forgotten because we've all experienced perfect inner healing, not only will we sing with joy like we've never sung because our hearts are finally liberated, we are told the whole of creation starts to sing because it too has been reconciled to its maker and is no longer feeling the curse and the effects of the fall. What a day it will be. Every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, as Psalm 98 says, that the Lord reigns, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every single one of us will be reconciled to our maker, either as we bow in fear to him as he comes to judge us, or as we welcome him with thanksgiving as we receive him 
as saviour and friend, as lover and king. But you see, when that day arrives, every one of us will be aware of the audience we've been living for. Everything will be revealed. Everything will be brought into the light, and the darkness and the tears and the sadness and the sin and the evil will be left behind forever. As Paul hands on the baton to Timothy, he says, if you want to finish the race of faith and life, remember your primary audience in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his final kingdom I give you this charge. Mosaic Church I wonder what motivates you this morning. I wonder who you're living for. I wonder who your primary audience is. The famous English cricket captain come missionary to China C.T. Studd put it like this in a poem. Only one life will soon be passed Only what's done for Christ will last. Who is your primary audience? For many of you, most of you, it won't mean going to Dublin or China, although I do wonder whether more of you should consider those kind of moves. But whatever you do in life, whether you're a student, a full-time mum, whether you're retired, whether you work in finance or business or education or healthcare, whatever you do, live every moment for the glory of God, aware of the abiding presence of Jesus in our midst. As you go to work, as you change babies' nappies, as you eat, as you, as you eat meals, as you play your sports, as you go to church, as you spend your money in your decisions, which always reveals, you spend your money and make decisions, which always reveals, <laughs> spend your decisions. Uh, as you spend your money and make decisions, which always reveals who your audience is, live aware of his presence, live for his glory, he gets the final verdict and say in all of our lives. The famous Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once asked a young girl who served as domestic, as a domestic in one of his families, what evidence she could give of becoming a Christian. And she meekly answered, I now sweep under the mats. The first thing we must do to ensure we finish the race and remain faithful, is remember our primary audience, Jesus, our great judge. Secondly, as I pass on the baton to you, I want to urge you in verses 2 to 5 to remember the standards, the word of God. At the end of chapter 3, Paul had said these words, very famous, you have known the holy scriptures, Timothy, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. He moves on the argument in chapter 4 and says, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. My greatest privilege and joy whilst being amongst you here at Mosaic has been the privilege of teaching and preaching God's word. I see it as the most important role of any pastor to feed the saints with scriptures when fighting off, off the devil in the desert. And Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone but on the very word of God. the inspired word of God, the scriptures, the Old and the New Testament. 
are to be our food. Ah, here we go. <laughs> now, now, one of the greatest challenges of any church... <laughs> look, I've just got to crack on. <laughs> now, one of the greatest challenges of any church is to communicate the unchanging gospel of Christ in a changing world. How do you take a timeless message about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and make it so relevant that people that don't know Jesus go, that's the greatest news I've ever heard? How do you take the whole truth from God's word and make it applicable so people say, this is going to revolutionize my life? Whether you preach, uh, whenever you preach the word, you must make sure you scratch where people are itching. It has to be relevant, it has to be applicable, it has to be life-changing, it has to make a difference, otherwise it's pointless. You know, God was so concerned to make the word relevant that he sent his son into the world. And John chapter 1.14 says, The word became flesh, he made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God was so concerned to make the revelation about himself clear that he came to a certain culture at a certain time. He spoke a certain language and dressed in a certain way. He told parables about the kingdom of God that related to the everyday business of farming and fishing. He was able to debate with the high-flying academics of his day, people like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, but he was also able to connect with those who probably had no education, like an ostracized, morally flawed Samaritan woman, the next chapter, John chapter 4. God is a God who engages with all cultures, all peoples, all generations, and all nations. He wants them to hear and come to know his life-giving words. It is so important to make the word of God relevant today, something I've strived to do every time I've preached. It's important to scratch where people are itching. But there is another type of itch that mustn't be scratched, and that is the itch that comes from people's selfish desires, verses 3 to 4. It is an itch that comes from, a people, from people who want to remain control of their own lives and living according to their own passions and opinions. You say, it's one, it's one thing to say, let me show you how God's word is relevant to your life today. It's another thing to say, let me change the word of God to make it relevant for your life today. Some churches never engage in the first process. And although everything they say is true, it never hits home. They never do their cultural engagement. They live in a very insular Christian ghetto and avoid contact with the world. They fail to engage in what people call contextualization. But there is another equal though opposite danger that the church can fall into. And that is in a desire to be relevant, to connect, to be appropriate to the context, to win people to Jesus, you end up compromising the very message you believe in. And that is what Paul warns Timothy about. And that is what I want to warn you about. I do not think Mosaic Church will ever fail to be culturally relevant or to communicate a message that will connect with people's hearts. But there is always a danger that if we're not careful, we can drop the baton and end up communicating a message that conforms to the itching ears of society. When you run as an athlete, the quickest way to be disqualified is to break the laws of your sport. As has been too well publicized recently with Lance Armstrong, you cannot win by illegal methods. You must measure up to the standards. You mustn't become compromised. Remember God's word. Remember the standards. Paul says to Timothy in chapter 1, which is the theme of the whole book, really, what you have heard from me, 
Keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. As many of you know, and far too many of you have mocked me for it, you will be judged. (laughs) I used to be a very serious ultimate frisbee player. You can be a very serious ultimate frisbee player. Eleven years ago, I arrived in Leeds, and I started to play for Leeds University, and one of the girls in the club was called Hannah. And in our second year, along with three others, we got a house together. So naturally, Hannah and I became good friends, sharing a house, being part of the same sports team, doing all the training and socials and travel. And every so often, she'd ask a question about my faith, and every so often, I'd invite her to the intro course or to a university or church event. But if truth be told, there was very little conversation. She didn't really have any interest in Jesus. Anyway, it was coming up to the Christmas in my second year, and I thought I'd invite the whole house to the carol service. Everyone loves a carol service. It's the easiest invite. So I did. I invited three of them to come, and Hannah was really positive. She said she loved carol services. All four of us went to this carol service together. I couldn't believe it. We'd never walked to a Christian event before all of us as a house. Anyway, we came to the concert, and everything was good. The music was good. The talk was simple and clear and good, and the mince pies and the mulled wine afterwards were good. Then we went to the pub for a drink, and I turned to Hannah, and this is the moment of truth, isn't it? You invite your friend to something, and I said to her, Hannah, what what did you think? And there was a bit of a silence, and she turned to me and said, you know what, Steve, I didn't like it. He called me a sinner. I can't believe he called me a sinner. How dare he? And you know what I said? I said, no, 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 He, he didn't. I bottled it. Here was my housemate I've been witnessing to her for two years, She finally comes to a carol service. She hears a simple message about Jesus being the friend of sinners. And she didn't like it. She felt offended. And I was so nervous to stay in her good books that I denied the very truth that the faithful preacher had said. I couldn't believe it, but the words were out of my mouth. And the moment was gone, and I don't think we ever talked about faith again. What was going on there? I was feeling all the pressures that Paul talked about when it comes to telling people about Jesus, you want to find a message that suits their itching ears and their desires. You want to make the gospel more palatable. Why had I done that? Because I want to be liked. I wanted to be accepted. Part and parcel of being a disciple of Jesus is believing and communicating a message that will sometimes offend people who don't want to give control of their lives to God. The message will offend people who are too proud to accept their faults and their ignorance. The message will accept people who don't want to fully surrender to the Bible and the God of the Bible. You see, if the Bible really is the Word of God, and if the God of the Bible really is the living God, then you should regularly find yourself reading the Bible and find it challenges your beliefs, your desires, and your cultural sensitivities. You should find that your own sinful desires and darkened understanding are being threatened. If the Bible never challenges you, you are sitting over the Word of God, not under it. If the God of the Bible never disturbs you and challenges you, you've made God into your own image, and he'll fit with all your felt needs and desires, but he will not be a God that will transform you into the image of his Son. John Stott put it this way, We have no liberty to invent our message, but only to communicate the Word which God has spoken and has committed to the church as a sacred trust. We are to speak 
what God has spoken. Particularly if you become a preacher or you are a preacher here at Mosaic, please be committed to what I call exegetical teaching, where you take what is in Scripture and make it plain, rather than just picking some nice themes and then finding a passage that fits those themes. We live in an age where more than ever before through the internet, it is very easy to gather around yourself teachers who will say what your itching ears want to hear. And I encourage you, I exhort you, work hard at your Bibles. Paul says to the Ephesian elders, as I said in chapter 20 of Acts, teach the whole counsel of God, not just the bits you like. We must continue to teach on the final judgment of Christ and the eternal separation from God. We must teach on the uniqueness of Christ as the only way to the Father. All religions don't lead to God. We must teach on the infallibility of the Scriptures as the final authority in our lives. And we must teach on God's standards in sexual ethics, where the same-sex relation, cohabitation, sex before marriage, or choosing a Christian marriage partner. Of course there is grace. Of course we help people on a journey. Of course we speak with gentleness, patience, and love. Of course, there's a second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever chance. Of course, we provide a community that accepts people wherever they're starting from. But we still must speak the truth at times, even when people don't want to hear it. You know, it's the greatest test of whether you've got verse one down and you're living for the primary audience. Whether you'll speak the word to people who won't like it, but you're not ultimately concerned with their rejection of you. You're ultimately concerned with what Jesus believes and thinks. There will be seasons when people receive the message, but there will also be seasons, Paul says, when people reject it. So as I pass on the baton and come to the end of my time, I urge you to finish the race and run with faithfulness to the end. Remember your audience, Jesus, our great judge. He gets the final verdict in all of life. Remember the standards, God's written word. And finally, remember the prize. Paul says this, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have longed for his appearing. I've often said to the boys I've been discipling here at Mosaic, I hope that I can say these words at my deathbed. God willing, if I'm given another 40 years and live to the age of 70, I would love to be able to tell the leaders that I'm raising up, as Paul was raising up Timothy, I finished the race. I kept the faith. 20 or 30 years earlier, Paul had said to the Ephesian elders on that beach in Miletus, and these words have been very important to Leanne and myself as we leave for Dublin. They're on the little magnets that you can take home with you if you want. The words are these, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. What an amazing thing. Paul says that 20 or 30 years before. At the end of his life, he says, I finished the race. I completed the task. I would love to be able to say to those that I'm discipling at the end of my life, and more importantly to Jesus when I meet him, I've been faithful. I preached the word. I've done the work of an evangelist. I kept my head in all situations. I endured hardship. I discharged all the duties of my ministry. Please don't, under, please don't misunderstand me. Paul is not boasting when he talks to Timothy like this. He's just saying, Timothy, I've been faithful. And he hopes that his example will encourage Timothy 
to be faithful. Faithfulness is what counts to God, not results, not numbers, not external performance, not popularity, not fame, not accolades. Faithfulness. See, Timothy, uh, Paul knows and he urges Timothy that Nero at any moment is going to kill him. But there's going to be a magnificent reversal of Nero's verdict when the Lord, the righteous judge, will say, no, he was my faithful servant. Faithfulness is what counts to God. Do you remember this famous parable Jesus told to underline this point? It comes at the end of Matthew's Gospel. He says that each of us have been given different finances, different opportunities, different backgrounds, different parents, different gifts, different breaks in life. We don't get to decide those things. They are all given us by the sovereign choice of God. But we do decide what to do with them and what we'll do with our talents, time and treasures which God has given us to further his kingdom. Will we out of fear and cowardice, people-pleasing and selfish ambition, squander what God has given us and give nothing back to God on that day? He'll accept us, but we'll have nothing to show. Or will we in faithfulness invest what we've been given, doing all we can with what we have, not worrying about what others have or what others are doing, or how successful we appear in the eyes of the world or our parents or our friends or our church leaders, but just concerned to be faithful with what Jesus has given us for the sake of God's purposes on earth. And for all those that remain faithful, we will meet Jesus. And he will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Those who are faithful to Jesus end up spending eternity enjoying his happiness. Stewarding and exploring the new creation for all eternity. When in, your earthly, when in your earthly life you lived for the audience of one, to spend all eternity in his glorious presence is your perfect reward and greatest joy. It's why we long for his appearing. But I want to end on a more personal note by picking up on a metaphor that Paul uses as he shares his personal testimony with Timothy. He starts verse 6 by talking about his departure. This is a word that refers to the untying of a boat from its moorings. Paul is talking about his death and he says that already the anchor is weighed, the ropes are untied and the boat is about to set sail for another voyage. Paul wants to encourage Timothy with his personal testimony of what it means to follow Jesus. Now if I might stretch the metaphor for a moment. Many of you who have walked the last 10 months with Leanne and myself will know that the image of a boat being untied and setting sail has been very important to us. Firstly, because of the great Irish and Celtic missionaries from the past, in the 5th, 6th and 7th centuries, in obedience to God, set sail from Ireland and brought the gospel back to mainland Europe. Where would we be if it wasn't for those missionaries? They were radicals, and their little boats were called coracles. Brendan in the 6th century said, Shall I take my tiny coracle across the wide sparkling ocean? O king of glorious heaven, shall I go of my own choice upon the sea? O Christ! Will you help me on the wild waves? And Columba, who went to Scotland in the 6th century, wrote, My coracle sings on the waves, yet my eyes are filled with tears. I know God blows me east, away from Ireland, yet my heart still pulls me west. These men and women were radicals, totally abandoned to Jesus and his mission. But their words reveal their adventures were not without emotional challenge and vulnerability. Right back in February this year, Leanne God gave Leanne this picture to help us understand our journey. It is a picture that speaks of adventure and what God is calling us to, but it also speaks to the emotional challenge and vulnerability that we feel as we leave such a wonderful church. 
and such wonderful memories. But I hope that our example might encourage you as a church to keep stepping out, keep taking risks, keep allowing the wind of God's spirit to catch your sails and move you on. Of course, this isn't the end of our relationship, and uh, I hope to minister among you again. But this is an end of an era, and I pass on the baton. It's just there to finish. Come on. I urge you, Mosaic Church, to finish the race, remembering that faithfulness is what counts. Remember your audience. Live for the glory of Jesus every day and long for his appearing. Remember the standards. Live by the word of God, making it relevant, but never compromising what God says. Remember the prize. For those that remain faithful, you will receive a crown of righteousness and you will share in the happiness of Jesus forever. Amen. Thank you.